The year is 1963. I'm Dave. I'm Zach. And you're listening to My Marvelous Year. Zach, comic book newbie, and along with Dave, a comic book expert, we're going to be breaking down the most essential Marvel stories from its origins to today. This episode will be covering the second half of 1963. Yeah, so I'm excited to get into it. We've got 10 new stories here from the 1963 list, and again, we'll be doing these issue by issue on each episode of My Marvelous Year. So Last uh, last issue or last episode, we left off with Fantastic Four Annual number one, which is number eight. And uh, number nine that we'll be going to today is Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos, number one. So this is the launch of a new war comic that Stan Lee and Jack Kirby worked on as the creators. And it was actually somewhat contentious, honestly, that they would even launch another war comic because these were extremely common Throughout the 1950s, nonetheless, Stan Lee was able to convince uh, editor and in, or not editor, excuse me, publisher Martin Goodman that um, that they could do it different, right? That together with Jack Kirby, that they could do something captivating in the sort of Marvel superhero style that they were cultivating. So that's how we get the the genesis of Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos. They actually ended up trying to integrate it into the larger Marvel world, right? Nick Fury obviously exists. You know, side by side with Captain America and S.H.I.E.L.D. and et cetera. I mean, not not at this point, but they do put that in eventually. And that's a really good point is that it would get there and they kind of it doesn't happen in the actual you know comic itself. But right on the cover, it says another big one from the talented team that brings you the famous Fantastic Four. Right. Hmm. So they're they're like hyping up their superhero bona fides um, as they begin this comic. So. Right off the bat, we get a quick intro to Meet the Howling Commandos, and we are going to do a roll call to get you familiar with the team. Sergeant Nick Fury. Six foot two of steel-muscled, iron-nerve fighting man. Robert Rebel Ralston. This lean ex-jockey from the bluegrass country of Kentucky is a lot tougher than his small size makes him appear. Corporal Dum Dum Dugan. This one-time circus strongman is Sergeant Fury's good right arm. Jonathan Junior Juniper. Fresh out of an Ivy League college, Junior is the cheerful, eager beaver of the group. Gabriel Jones. Gabe used to blow the sweetest trumpet this side of Carnegie Hall. Izzy Cohen. This scrappy, tough master mechanic loves machinery the way some men love fame and fortune. And Dino Minnelli. You might have seen him in the movies under another name. For this handsome swashbuckler gave up a promising career as an actor in order to repay the country he loves for all it has given him. This is a great two-page spread of 
this this cast of characters immediately introduces you to all of them and something that stood out to me having read these 1960s comics by marvel this is the most diverse they've gotten so far so you've got uh an italian american a jewish american an african american all here which i don't think have featured even a secondary character so far at this point in what we've read yeah, and I think it helps that both Stan and Jack were in World War II and mm-hmm, would have yeah. had experiences meeting other people and meeting diverse, you know, groups of, of people who would have been in World War II. Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's a fair point to call out. And it does make it makes the Holland Commandos lineup kind of immediately more interesting um, because they have a widespread cast and backgrounds. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So. Basically, what happens in this issue is Fury assembles his seven, so that's the Holland Commandos, versus the mm-hmm. Nazis to rescue an ally uh, who has been captured by the Nazis, and he has this ally has the precise knowledge of the D-Day timing and location, right? So it's a um, you know kind of a suicide mission, uh, or you know this is well before the Suicide Squad on the DC side of things, but you got seven Holland Commandos going in against basically the entirety of the Nazi army. And if you've ever read a war comic, it plays out, honestly, a lot like (laughs) those in that the team, uh, they battled Nazis in French town alongside some French freedom fighters. And they basically rush in and it's pages and pages of action and battle. I'm not that familiar with these old war comics. But what struck me about this is how big and like extra all the action and the howling commandos were throughout this. So uh, just just to just as an example, when they're initially flying into Nazi occupied France, they're in their their transport plane and a bunch of Luftwaffe Nazi fighters start coming in and firing on their plane. And immediately Nick Fury just punches the window of the plane out and starts firing his rifle <laughs> at the fighter planes outside and then like two panels later they parachute out and while they're going down uh dum dum dugan he's he's in his parachute and he unpins his grenade and throws it at a fighter plane blowing it up they land on the ground and nick fury immediately shakes his fist at the sky and yells and that's just a sample of what we got in store for you you hear just a sample it, it's so big and so extravagant and yeah yeah, it, it, yeah it, it's a it, lot of fun. fun. I mean, it's it's just wild action. You have to believe that seven people could take on fighter jets and tanks. You know, you yeah. get a lot of like one on one man versus tank scenes, which, you know, which presumably won't end well. But of course they do for the Holland Commandos, at least in this issue. Um, yeah, yeah I, I tend to think that like War Comics and Sergeant Fury and the Holland Commandos, they I think they feel very, very dated. Um, in a way that superhero comics don't to me because the superhero line has continued and updated mm-hmm. and modernized. Uh, war comics feel more era specific to me, you know, and again, this is published in 1963. We're like almost 20 years removed from World War II. I think even then, even then publishing it um, is is a mild stretch as far as like timeliness goes. Obviously, it was a huge part of Kirby and Lee's life growing up and, and being in it. Um, but again, to me, it's like the really interesting parts are to get to know Nick Fury and to get to know the Howling Commandos, because these are characters that will be important as S.H.I.E.L.D. comes into into play in the Marvel Universe. So yeah, it's interesting because I, I didn't I didn't quite view it the same way. I I really just enjoyed this one. Yeah, I kind of I kind of want to continue reading these on my own. Like, I mean, it doesn't 
World War II was a serious thing. A lot of people actually died. They were involved in it. They understand this. And this does not take it too seriously, right? It's it's very much a right. black and white, you know, good versus evil, bunch of like good old boys kicking some ass. But um, I know eventually they start trying to do some more serious stories and they start trying to get into some more, I wouldn't, yeah, morally gray areas. And I, I'm I'm curious to see where how how they how they slowly shift into something that might be a little bit more serious. But I I enjoyed this. I I think the action was fun. It could use a little bit more meat on its bones. But the Howling Commandos were really fun. I I it reminded me of the Rawhide Kid a little bit. Like yeah, it doesn't seem important to the the overall Marvel universe. But I thought it was still pretty solid on its own. It actually reminded me of the Rawhide Kid, which is something I talked about in Extra Issues, in the same way that because of the comics book code, it doesn't want to portray gunshot wounds, <laughs> right? So you get a fair amount of Nazis shooting people in the wrists, just like Rawhide Kid. Um, anytime the Howling Commandos open fire on a bunch of Nazis, it always just shows their helmets flying through the air after the fact. <laughs> like they, <laughs> they've, been, they've been shot out of their helmets. Right. So there's one point where Nick Fury, and I think it's Dum Dum, burst in on a bunch of Nazis, and the panel just has five different helmets flying through the air. With their Nazis nowhere to be seen. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. I yeah, it, it's that's a good point. Like it's pre comic code too, right? So it's it has to it has to figure out creative ways to handle the actual trauma <laughs> of war. Yeah, yeah, sure. um, there's a couple other things I would call out here. One, Nick Fury basically wears ammo to cover his nipples for most of the comic, <laughs> which I think is awesome. <laughs> Uh, you also have really good character dynamics, like right off the bat. So I think, again, you know, to Lee's promise of like, we're going to do a war comic, but we're going to do it different. Um, I think these characters do stand out as pretty compelling. Fury in particular is this battle hardened leader of the team who is shouting them down. You've got Dum Dum. When we first meet him, he's leading all of the Howling Commandos in like drill training where they're just, you know, sticking their face in the mud. And I think he's like firing a machine gun at them with like live rounds. Yeah, it's supposed to be like live fire practice where he fires over their heads, but he just gets carried away and starts just like shooting between the ranks of them. Right. And he's cackling like a maniac. So it's a it's pretty clearly a fun team. You get the classic uh rallying cry of the of the Howling Commandos here or the dum dum wahoo which would go on to live, which is... <laughs> I did not pick up on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily. It's just a sound effect um, at this <laughs> at this point in time. But uh, but yeah, it's good stuff. It ends with the, the commandos and the French underground invading the Nazi base and rescuing the allies. So they save they save D-Day and the comic ends, you know, with the, um, you know, basically a kind of historical recap of what happened on D-Day. So, yep. Yeah. Yo, and also, uh, as an aside, anyone who's familiar with Nick Fury, his iconic eye patch is not here. He has both eyes, as he does in a, another Fantastic Four comment. Where he he makes he makes a cameo in a Fantastic Four comic this year as well, and he has both eyes there. So, I I honestly have no idea how he loses one eye and become gets that iconic eye patch. So I'll be curious to find that out. Yeah, we we do not know as of yet, and that's a really good call out. Yeah, I won't get into it at this point. Yeah, yeah. All right, so next we read Tales to Astonish number 44. This is another Ant-Man joint. It starts out with Ant-Man in his ant form. Small form, he's not an ant. But he uh, he uses growth gas to grow back to his normal size, which is different from a few issues ago where he was just splashing growth liquid on his wrists versus a few issues from now that I read where he's using growth pills. 
So he cannot figure out a delivery method, a consistent delivery method for his serums. It does seem like pills is the more is the more palatable solution. Yeah, I think that's probably what he ends up sticking with. At some point, he gets a utility belt full of pills for growing and shrinking. Yeah. Anyway, he collapses, exhausted on a couch, and starts thinking of his wife, Maria Truvaya. She was a Hungarian who fled her country with her father, the scientist, after World War II. And Hank Pym is reminiscing about a time that they went on vacation to Hungary, which was an odd choice because she was a political... <laughs> political dissident and like expat from Hungary and Hank is worrying you know about that she's going to be recognized and she's like oh no it's fine no one will recognize me she immediately gets scooped up by the secret police and is murdered (laughs) Uh, so Hank Pym is heartbroken and his wife was taken from him and they they can't he can't find anyone to hold accountable in Hungary and uh, he goes back to America. I would uh, just to pause real quick there before before he goes back to America. You know, they call out in the comic that Pym is on the verge of a mental and physical breakdown in Hungary mm-hmm. after his his wife and father in law have been murdered by the secret police. He has this mental and physical breakdown. That's actually kind of a recurring theme with Hank Pym. Um, it's I think honestly, I think this portion of his backstory very frequently gets overlooked because, you yeah. know, throughout the rest of the issue, we're going to move into Ant-Man and the Wasp territory. And that's what I think most people tend to think of when they think of Pym. But he has we talked about in his origin. He's kind of he's boring, right? He's yeah. he's just a superhero with no complexity and no hidden emotion. And then they really lather it on in this issue. But they do it very quickly. And and almost cover it up. But it's like that lingers with Pym and that affects him. And he's going to be one of the most troubled Avengers. Uh, Yeah, definitely. Yeah. The inferiority complex. Right, for sure. And I think, you know, I think we can't overlook that, like, he has a horrible <laughs> experience here in his background that shapes. Yeah, him I know. We, I mean, we were laughing. Well, I'm laughing at the vacation spot, <laughs> you know, as opposed to the outcome. At, at its core, it's a very sad story. Right, right. But it's more just like, what? why is Pym the way he is? Well, this is a mm-hmm. big part of it. Yeah. Yep, sure. So back in America, he is toiling to try to find a way to regain some control and maybe do some good in the world. And he is he's remembering something that his wife used to say to him. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Which is, uh, I think actually she just said, go to the ant, thou sluggard. But uh, that's a, a verse from Proverbs, mm. and uh, <laughs> he takes it literally and decides to <laughs> go to the ant, go to the ants as a small little ant-man, uh, and he creates his ant-man suit, which allows him to shrink down in size. Uh, he also talks a little bit about how you know he's burdened by having to do all this alone, and he wishes he has a sidekick. Cue a knock on a door, and it's... Another scientist, Dr. Vernon Van Dyne, who comes to discuss his work with Hank, and he brings along with him his daughter, Janet Van Dyne, who Hank Hank is immediately struck with because she reminds him of his wife, but a much younger version. And he goes on about this a lot, how... Oh my gosh, so much. So many times. He talks about like, no, she's, she's not but a child, but I can't take my eyes off her. Yeah, it's really... Ugh. Anyway... So Vernon Van Dyne 
uh, does this work where he uses gamma rays to search for life in outer space. He pitches the idea to Hank Pym, and Hank Pym is like, I don't do anything with that. <laughs> that's, that's not my field. So uh, he leaves. It's basically a way to introduce Janet Van Dyne. Uh, it cuts to Vernon Van Dyne using his gamma rays to look for aliens. A creature from the planet Cosmos rides his gamma ray beam back to Earth, which makes sense. Uh, it's this enormous alien that kind of looks like a more melty version of Jabba the Hutt. This is back in Jack Kirby monster territory that I hate. Well, we, <laughs> I should, this is... we should call out with that note that this is a plot by Lee and art by Kirby. Um, and Jack Kirby actually was not drawing a lot of Ant-Man, but he did do this for the origin of the Wasp. Um, you know, I didn't know that, but I knew it because of that monster. Of that monster. It's so distinctly one of those weird melty Kirby monsters totally. that I'm not a fan of. Yep. So uh, Cosmo... or. You know what? This monster doesn't even get named. He's just from the planet Cosmos. Is he from Cosmos? Yeah, I, I was calling yeah. him Cosmos, but I think you're right. Yeah, it he's, says that in big letters on the cover. Anyway. Yeah, he's a criminal escapee from uh, yep. from an alien planet. It, it really goes into high sci-fi very fast in an unexpected <laughs> way. Yeah. You know, it takes it's like this political intrigue and science, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're back to alien monster comics. I uh, didn't really expect yeah. that, actually. Yeah. So this, this alien comes down, destroys all of Van Dyne's equipment, and kills the doctor with like fear gas or something <laughs> janet van dyne calls hank pym because she trusts him i don't know uh, having just met him she, she finds her father's body and she calls hank pym and she tells him about that she just found her father's body in this his lab destroyed hank doesn't believe her hank just says like you know that she's just some irresponsible child getting her kicks by telling tall tales he hangs he hangs up on her <laughs> she's she's calling to tell him like my father's dead his equipment's destroyed he hangs up on her <laughs> bad sign next panel ants walk up to him and tell him literally the same exact thing <laughs> his ants report to him the same thing mm -hmm. and he goes like oh my god what an emergency i i better get going it's an unintended metaphor but when the man yeah. believes the ants over the woman <laughs> yeah yeah i, I <laughs> Yeah, he does come around, though, and I love there's this panel of him getting into his Ant-Man cannon to can catapult <laughs> oh, yeah, himself right. to Janet Van Dyne. The ways that Ant-Man travels in these early comics are frequently very, very fun. Um, and, like, putting himself in a circus cannon to shoot across town <laughs> is one of my favorites. I, yeah, he also flies on the back of, like, two flying ants with one foot on each ant, like... Uh... Was it like Ben-Hur riding horses? That's a cool, that's <laughs> in, a cool visual too, yeah. Anyway, so uh, he meets up with Janet Van Dyne and he kind of realizes she, she wants justice for her father. He sees her pure heart and he decides to recruit her as his sidekick. And I would, I'd mention there, Janet doesn't just want uh, justice. She actually uh, articulates that she wants avenging. And mm, she uses yeah. the word there. And she will, of course, be around when we get to Avengers number one here in just a few moments. Yeah, so it, and I said sidekick. That's not quite right. And maybe that's how they pitch it. But I feel like they're more of a, a duo. It's, a, duo. it's like a romantic partnership. I mean, it is a little, yeah. I guess it's a little unique in terms of sidekicks. I don't know. Certainly in the Marvel universe, there's not like the sidekick pairing coupled with um potential you know coupling mm. uh i don't i'm trying to think of other examples all i can think of is batman and robin where obviously that is an unintended <laughs> maybe a uh, subtext um but i don't i can't really think of any others that are structured that way i don't i'm 
hesitate to say it's the first though. So let's say he so he recruits he recruits Janet Van Dyne as the Wasp. Uh, basically the same power as him, the ability to shrink, but he integrates like wasp DNA <laughs> into her body, into her cells, so that when she shrinks, she grows wasp wings. Only when she's small, she grows these wasp wings that allow her to fly. And then she also has these like she has these little stingers on her hands. So I, I'm going to fast track through the rest of this because it's not particularly interesting. They find out that this alien creature that's rampaging through town is composed of formic acid, which is something that is in bee stings and wasp stings. And uh, Hank Pym goes back to his lab to discover the cure for formic acid, whatever that means. He loads a bunch of shotgun shells with anti-formic acid, carries it across town, and shoots the alien creature, disintegrating it. What, what struck me about this is that in his lab, he makes these shotgun shells full of this chemical. And then he shrinks down in size and has to have his ants transport the shotgun and the shotgun shells across town. And then as Ant-Man, he pulls the trigger, which is about the size of him, tries to aim it like an enormous shotgun, pulls the trigger. None of that needs Ant-Man. Him as a full-sized human being, it would have been easier for him just to carry the shotgun and shoot this creature. They, they never give any explanation for why he has to be <laughs> Ant-Man firing a full-size gun. I guess it's sneakier. Yeah, I get. I mean, I looked for that. I thought that that might be the reason, but they don't say that they had to sneak up on it. He's firing from a distance. Hey, whatever yeah. way we get rid of Cosmos, I'm good with it. <laughs> yeah, he didn't really do much. No. So yeah, I usually don't talk about the B stories here or even read them, but this one, The Hunted, is really worth reading. It caught my eye, and it's caught my eye every time I've come to this comic for whatever reason. So it is, it's a um, Stan Lee and Steve Ditko short story, and it's very mm-hmm. much in that you know, tales of suspense, amazing fantasy vein where it's, you know, it's a short story with a twist comic um, where there's kind of a moral at the end, but this one really hits. Basically what happens is there's a man being chased by, he's like hunted by the planet and this man is being chased and they're all saying that he's got the plague and they're, they're trying to quarantine him. Right. So the first I want to say is this like dystopian thing, right? Where he's like, yeah, he's running from the state. He's, unfairly being right you know going to be imprisoned for whatever this quote-unquote plague is right so it sets the mood that right maybe he's maybe he's innocent or maybe they're all chasing him unfairly or you know he needs to get out of there right so he's being chased across the entire planet and i think it's you know three pages of people trying to catch him and we kind of you know come around to this guy's side and then they finally corner him whoever's you know these police on this planet (laughs) and this this future dystopia and and they're all human human beings basically um and they corner him and they say you've got you've got the plague you know we need to stop you and he finally realizing he's cornered pulls out the plague now i had assumed (laughs) that he had disease he pulls out the plague which is a handgun it's the last of its kind right and he stole from a museum that he stole from a museum and they take the gun from him and say you know this plague is is you know basically it's a destroyer and it's a very very clear message that you know guns are violent and and are a plague upon humanity and it's again like there are going to be people who find this offensive obviously this is a divisive issue in america in particular um but it's for the intent of the story for four pages it is extremely effective i think it is and it's it's one of the most like them taking a hard moral stance about something political Besides, I guess they are just generally anti-communist. That's about the biggest, like, 
political issue that they wade into. And that I think that just feels like status quo at the time. Yeah. This feels like the strongest, like, hard moral and political stance that they've taken and, you know, unequivocally so. Right. It's, yeah, it's really effective. It was... Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a really good one. I recommend reading that as well. Um, you know, I would call out, I think, you know, so this is published in mid-63, I think later mm-hmm. in the year, uh, is the assassination of JFK. So I don't think it's November. a response to that, but it's kind of prescient in terms of, you know, talking about the issue that obviously still resonates today. So Finesse for number 16 is the first of a two-part story. It goes FFs number 16 and number 17. They're the last of the Fantastic Four stories we'll be covering as part of 1963, and this is the return of Doctor Doom. So if you remember from the last episode, Doctor Doom shrank into nothingness. This issue, 16, promises uh, both an Ant-Man cameo and the return of Doctor Doom from where the microverse where he has been um, shrunken to. So, Are you going to talk about that splash page that opens this up? Um... I don't know. Am I? I, I can mention it. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a picture of the Fantastic Four, and I think in Ant Man, all all down to Ant Man size, while Doctor Doom looms over them full size, looking at them under a microscope. Mm. It's it's really fun, and my favorite detail of it is that Ben Grimm is just like ripping chunks out of the side of the microscope. He's just <laughs> <laughs> raging, tearing apart the microscope yeah. because, of course, he is right. Even tiny, he's destructive. No, that's yeah. awesome. So the issue begins with uh, Johnny Human Torch swoops into the Baxter building to find Reed, Sue, and Ben shrunken and being swept into an air vent. They're all super (laughs) tiny, and they're being sucked into the vent. Johnny, of course, helps and, uh, and, and, and prevents this from happening, and they all kind of return to size, only to realize that all of them, over the course of the past week, basically, have been shrinking. And they've all been a little too embarrassed to tell one another because they thought they were going crazy. <laughs> and basically, we they, get they a- each show their little story of mm-hmm. their experience shrinking individually over the week. And they're all pretty funny. Again, Ben Grimm's The Thing is the best where he shrunk down and got really embarrassed. I think the most embarrassed out of all of them. So he went and hid in Reed's guinea pig cage. <laughs> so there's a really funny shot of him just cowering next to a guinea pig who looks totally bewildered. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty funny. Uh, I One quick visual thing, too, with, with Kirby drawing the Fantastic Four is uh, Ben Grimm's bricks are a lot more defined by this point. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't look so melty. He's not anymore. so melty, he's not so mushy uh, in a way that I really like. Um, I like the yeah, way the yeah. thing develops. I always like to imagine, I don't think it's intentional, I think it's just a production and time thing, but I always like to imagine, like, they became more solidified the longer he'd had, you know, the co- the effect of the cosmic rays, that this was actually like an evolution of his brick shape. Um, but I, again, like, I don't think that's intended. That's just kind of the way visually it plays over the course of the first 20 issues or so. Oh, yeah, that's something also worth mentioning is that like in these early issues, it feels like it's every other issue that Reed walks up to him, hands him a potion that he drinks or forces it down his throat and he turns back into human form for three to eight minutes Mm -hmm. like and then he turns back so they're constantly like playing with he gets to be human for these tiny little moments of time and then reverts back well and that that actually happens in this issue so yeah um, Uh, yeah i mean reed does develop a new serum for returning ben to human form 
uh, he actually, it's a pretty funny version of oh, it yeah, because yeah. Ben is moving furniture for Alicia and he's literally carrying a piano. <laughs> he walks into the room and force feeds this test like tube. shoves the test tube down his, yeah. Yeah, into Ben, who, tur- who it works for a short period of time. It turns back, Ben back into human form while he's holding the piano, which falls and crashes on the ground because he can't hold it anymore. <laughs> Good grief, Reed. Since Ben's with Alicia Masters... He says something that, like, Alicia likes him better as the thing anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, don't worry about curing me. Why don't you... He says something like, why don't you work on a cure for blindness instead? <laughs> which is pretty good, yeah. He's already becoming Just, more accepting of being the thing, um, yeah. which I, I think is useful and, and very good for him because Reed's constant efforts um, constantly fail, right? They're always they're, they're all these short-term successes. And this will define their dynamic um, really for the rest of time where and it can be more about reed's guilt yeah. over having done it to him kind of than about ben wanting to turn back yeah and it's i mean at this point it's reed's it's his most human character dynamic right is his guilt over what he's done to his friend and his constant efforts to try and help him turn back even as ben is more and more like listen i'm the thing i'm i'm fine i'm, I'm used to it you know not that he doesn't want it you know he does um, yeah, you get moments of it. Right, right, for sure. So, so yeah, so that's happening. As that's kind of happening, um, before when the team was all talking about how they were shrinking, there's a network of ants that overhears uh, the team. They mention Ant-Man as they're talking about shrinking because they're, you know, tie the two together. They've heard of his exploits. And those ants fly to Hank Pym, who we've just discussed, yeah, those ants have, he has a Google alert set up. Oh, he's ants. got. Anytime he hears the word Ant-Man, <laughs> it, send, it sends him a notification. Yeah, yeah, that's a good analogy. I mean, I think it's like a terrifying spy network. There is an implication here that all ants everywhere are just listening for him, which I, I don't think it, does that get followed up on in any real way? Well, just. Is that just kind of a one I, I think there's a, there's a later moment, I think in Avengers number one, actually, where something similar happens. And it's kind of, you know, there's it's a lot of talk about privacy and surveillance these days. And Ant-Man was blowing that out of the water back in 1963, <laughs> right? The Fantastic yeah. Four did not click, uh, did not click, I accept these terms with the, with the ants <laughs> listening in on their conversation. Yeah. So, but anyway, so he finds out that the team is in need of help. And that's what's going to bring him into this issue in a few. So basically what happens is uh, the team is transported finally to the microverse, to micro world, where they find Dr. Doom is the ruler. And just to make it clear, Dr. Doom is the one who has been shrinking them, just toying with them. Yes. And he is the one who shrinks them down to size so that they cross a dimensional plane into a new dimension called the microverse. Now, once in the microverse, Dr. Doom shrinks the team even more uh, so they are tiny as possible with the microverse. He shrinks them even more and then places them in a prison with some of the uh, the royal captives that he's taken. So Dr. Doom has them in the microverse and has them imprisoned. He talks about, I guess the microverse is not just our, it's not just our world, but smaller. It's its own separate dimension and it's got its own planets and its own galaxies. Anyway, so Dr. Doom has them all in prison, and he plans on selling them off to another species from another planet called the Lizardmen of Tok. And it talks a little bit about what these Lizardmen are going to do with the Fantastic Four once they get them, which is very funny. They just say, like, they're going to use Reed Richards as a bridge because he can stretch. <laughs> also humiliating. 
<laughs> yeah. It, also, Sue Storm is just going to be their scullery maid and, like, hand out potatoes is yeah. what the picture shows. It, it's just, like, they need grander ambitions, the, these lizard men. <laughs> anyway, Ant-Man comes to the rescue. He shrinks down into the microverse, breaks the Fantastic Four out, a fight ensues, and then Doctor Doom escapes the microverse back into our universe and the fantastic four follows trying to capture him as we move into fantastic four number 17 yeah and this one was interesting because it picks up immediately after 16 i don't know if we've seen that before where like the two stories are back to back like there's always the obviously linking between issues but i'm not sure if we had such a clear like continuation of the story before i could be wrong yeah no they don't do a lot of to be continued at this point yeah. um the vast majority of comics are one and done i was actually just listening to a, a historian talking about justice league stories and basically the idea of like a three-part justice league story in the early 70s was still kind of crazy right and that's that's true of marvel as well right a two-part story is a big deal <laughs> that doesn't happen very much so uh number 17 picks up right after this so immediately after returning to Earth, chasing Doctor Doom, they've lost track of him back in New York. Reed constructs a radar that is, quote, extra sensitive to human flesh covered by steel <laughs> to try to find Doctor Doom, which is a very gross, specific radar. Also a missed opportunity for an Iron Man cameo. Oh, right. Yeah, that's a very good point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all the Fantastic Four go out to try to find Doctor Doom. Um, Ben goes out in the street just looking for him. He sees someone in a green cloak at a distance that looks like Dr. Doom from behind. And while he's running after him, he falls into a manhole. <laughs> and curses. They have a bleeped out swear that Ben oh, Grimm like the utters. a bunch of like exclamation hashtag yes. at sign. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I like to call oh. out because, again, this is pre-comics code. And to my knowledge, the thing is the first Marvel character to swear. I'm pretty confident. Oh, okay. Interesting. Uh, after falling into the sewers, he bursts out of the street crashes a car, catches up with this guy in a green cloak, and he turns him around to find out that he's just like a street advertisement for a show about medieval knights. Yeah, yeah, he's like a renaissance, <laughs> renaissance fair guy. None of, none of the Fantastic Four can find him. So <laughs> they get all dressed up for a night out on the town. They As they're leaving the Baxter building, there's this big crowd of fans in the lobby, and uh, <laughs> which is very funny. It's just like a bunch of fans. One of them was holding a sign that just says, Fantastic Four fans, <laughs> just to let you know exactly what they're there for. <laughs> That's good. Um, ben... <laughs> uh, uh, ben is worried. Oh, my God. I'm not going to get through this sentence. Ben is worried that the crowd is infiltrated by Yancey Streeters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he... <sighs> he ponders to himself whether or not he could convince the mayor of New York City... Basically to enact the purge for the Yancey Street for one night. He says like, he says something like, if only all all limits were off with me and the Yancey Street for one night, that would take care of it. Yeah, yeah, very early purge. That's a good comparison. I love that it's just like constantly lingering in the back of his mind too. Like Dr. Doom is loose and he's meanwhile thinking, man, I really need to take out Yancey Street. Like, what if a bunch of teenagers are in this crowd looking to egg me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the Ben Yancey Street thing is like by far my favorite like the bit of humor in these comics so far it's good stuff oh, so yeah good. okay anyway dr doom dr doom is dressed as a janitor which i don't know he just has a beard on and oh no i guess he has a latex mask on to cover the his face dr doom comes up to them in disguise and pretends to be a fan he ushers them out 
a back door, shakes all their hands, and places trackers on all of them. Uh, (laughs) These trackers, he sets loose a bunch of robots that just kind of look like dumb baby Michelin men. They're like smoothed out, weird, rubbery Michelin men (laughs) that that just float. They're like incorporeal ghosts that are actually pretty creepy. Like this big, like dumb-eyed white figure that just hovers over each of the Fantastic Four, tracks them. And then they can't do anything. Eventually, they they dispense with them. And Doctor Doom says that the purpose of these robot ghosts was just to embarrass and confuse them. Yeah, I had written down. I had written down, Victor. I love you, but why do you need to track them? You know exactly where they live. And then, of course, he calls out, "No, I'm just confusing them." <laughs> yeah, just he, he actually them. does something with it later. But anyway, where am I? Okay, so Doctor Doom goes and kidnaps Alicia Masters, and then he sends a threat to America. <laughs> Just in general, he sends a threat to the White House, threatening, um, threatening like destruction of America if they do not appoint him a position in the president's cabinet, <laughs> which to my mind is a pretty, I don't know, it, again, his ambitions could be bigger, right? Like, he just wants to be the secretary of the interior, like. <laughs> right, right. Urban housing development is extremely important to do. Um, yeah, like, I'll be head of HUD. Or I'm going to destroy everything. <laughs> it's a very, it's a very James Bond villain turn for Doom Two. Yeah, he has like he has a spaceship that like is covered in a cloud hovering around, and he's just like knocking out America's electronic infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely true. Oh yeah, this is very James Bondy. Because next thing that happens is that they're the Fantastic Four is going to infiltrate the ship to stop Doom from destroying America and to rescue Alicia Masters. And they realize that Dr. Doom has created these genetic maps of their bodies that, like, are fine-tuned to them. So if they try to approach, they'll be destroyed instantly by lasers or something. So the way that they get around this is by Reed giving Ben Grimm a serum to turn him into a human because Doom has the, the thing mapped, but not Ben Grimm. Mm-hmm. So Ben Grimm shuts down the systems, lets the rest of the Fantastic Four in. They break in. Dr. Doom calls Ben a gargoyle, which this is the closest Stanley's gotten. This is the third instance of him using that word. And the, <laughs> Ben is definitely the closest to a gargoyle. That he gets, he gets truer so and truer every time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's he's honing in on it. Um, what I like about this is that Sue Storm goes and rescues Alicia Masters, and then Dr. Doom faces her one-on-one. And for once, Sue Storm is like pretty competent solo. She actually like she karate chops Doctor Doom and says that like she learned judo from from one of the world's greatest experts, Reed Richards, which is like quite the revelation that Reed Richards is one of the world's greatest judo experts. It's not the first time that comes up though, because I think Johnny mentions the same thing, maybe in an issue of Strange Tales, um, mm. where they talk about Reed's incredible judo skills, which is I feel like would be news to Reed. <laughs> He'd be like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, the Fantastic Four break in. They save Alicia. They uh, destroy Doom's ship and they escape. And Doom and Doom flies, uh, you know, he basically falls out of the ship and he, the final panel we see is him, you know, basically a speck in the skies. He falls again, which at this point, the running gag of Doom getting away but also seemingly dying is is pretty great and i kind of wish it had never stopped <laughs> like i kind of wish every doom <laughs> appearance ended with him seemingly gone well marvel comics does pull that like stunt a lot you see a lot of that where like the 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 villain is like well they could have never survived that 
but oh, their body sure. is missing, right? Like for that, sure. But Doom's five out um, of five. Like he's bad at this point. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> Good stuff. All right. So the next issue that we talked about was Avengers number one. So we're going to get into in the back half of this list some some pretty interesting number one issues um, and some origins. So again, like we're in sixty three here. The Marvel universe is fleshing out, and this is the point where Marvel actually got they were doing well enough that they actually got the uh, permission to publish more comics. And uh, one of the comics that they launched that was kind of a no-brainer was their take on, you know, a Justice League of America-style book, Mm -hmm. and that is, of course, Avengers number one. So it's not quite two years after Fantastic Four number one, and we've already got our first team-up book within the Marvel Universe. On the cover, you have Thor, Ant-Man, Hulk, and Iron Man. The Wasp is drawn but not listed as a as a founding member, which she is, in fact, mm-hmm. uh, which yep. is a slight, I'm going to say, against her character. I mean, again, like we talked about her origin in Tales to Astonish. She is barely a sidekick at this point. So I guess that kind of makes sense. You know, they haven't really developed her as a hero in her own right. Um, nonetheless, there she is in Avengers number one. So I've got a lot of notes for Avengers number one. I'm going to be honest because it's a pretty important issue. And it's when when Avengers, the movie, was you know coming out in 2012, there were a lot of people, myself included, who thought that they would probably just adapt Avengers number one as as how that movie was going to play out. And, uh, you know, they take elements here and there. Um, well, I mean, yeah, it stood out to me like it. Um, but that Loki is actually the villain of this, just like the first Avengers movie. Exactly, exactly. So we actually open with Loki in Asgard's Isle of Silence, where he has been imprisoned by Thor. And of course, he's plotting. And Loki, he's thinking of ways to take down Thor, right? He needs someone as powerful as Thor to put a whooping on him. And he identifies the Hulk as a creature of Earth who might be able to do this. So in order to manipulate the Hulk to his own ends... Loki creates a mirage of dynamite on train tracks for the Hulk to see. Um, And he basically creates this mirage so that the Hulk will jump and destroy the tracks and everyone will think he is a villain. So he's trying to create a scenario where enough people get talking about this villain who destroyed the train tracks to get Thor to go and fight him. And Mm -hmm. he is successful. The Hulk sees the mirage. He tries to do the right thing. He tries to remove from the train. And in doing so, he destroys the tracks. Now, the Hulk actually lifts up the train to make sure that nobody is hurt. But, of course, this goes unnoticed. The people still just see a monster destroying the tracks. Loki sees it and says, like, you know, the only two people know that he's a hero are me and the Hulk. And I'm not talking. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, So then that brings us to Rick Jones and the Teen Brigade. Of course, we met Rick Mm -hmm. in the... Uh, intro to Incredible Hulk. And I, I talked about the origins of the Teen Brigade in Extra Issues awesome. this year. Awesome, yeah. So this is his, you know, it's, again, just like a it's like a phone network, basically. It's like a call system. <laughs> it's all ha- ham radios, yeah, teens and ham radios. Yeah, and they put out the call, um, you know, with all this news of the Hulk for the Fantastic Four, uh, and they try to get them to come in and handle the situation, which they've done before, right? We read, and I think it was Fantastic Four number 12, where they interact with the Hulk. And Rick, of course, knows Bruce. He knows the Hulk. He knows his secret. And he doesn't believe that he's actually a villain because he knows him, right? So he wants to call on some heroes to try and handle the situation, yeah. um, you know, cleanly. And instead of getting the Fantastic Four, he his radio signal is intercepted by all sorts of people. I think it's by Loki, doesn't Loki? 
Oh, that's right. Loki diverts the radio signal with his magic because <laughs> he just, he, why not? He just basically bends it out of the way of the Fantastic Four. So he tries to get it to Thor. Thor gets it. I think it happenstance goes to Iron Man as well. And then mm-hmm. I think this is where Ant-Man's wasps or Ant-Man's um, ants hear it. And mm-hmm. that is what brings Ant-Man and the wasps. So again, they're, they're NS ants uh, pick up the signal. And and then that brings Thor, Iron Man, Ant-Man, and the Wasp all out to the Southwest to go and kind of track down the Hulk. So the, it's kind of funny because so the, the first time the Avengers assemble, it, it's completely by accident. Right. It's a total fluke, um, <laughs> even though it's, you know, it's a fluke by Loki's semi-design. So the Fantastic Four eventually get the message mm-hmm. and they say something like, oh, well, you know, Thor and Iron Man are on it. We don't need to worry about it. The The part that I really like about this is that the message comes over the ham radio and Ben Grimm says like that he's going to go answer it. And Sue Storm chides him and just says like, Ben Grimm, you know, you get Mike fright every time you use it. <laughs> it's, again, it's very funny that he's like really happy to go. I, I really want to like see that happen. Like Ben Grimm, go pick up the radio and then just go. The, th- the B- Ben Grimm, he over. Uh, <laughs> And then inevitably smash the mic as he gets frustrated. Oh, yeah, yeah. no, it's it's a great small little moment. And I think it might be it's one of the earlier instances too of like of Reed being like, No, we're busy. We got a space thing. You know, like that happens obviously throughout Marvel as we go, because one of the big questions that keeps coming up and, and honestly it's like people ask this with the MCU a lot too. It's like how is mm-hmm. Spider Man having a fight with a vulture without anyone else showing up, right? We know all these other right. heroes are yeah. around. So you, like, they start to basically, Fantastic Four especially, they're like, uh, they're in space, <laughs> right? It's like they have yeah. to have something else going on, which kind of makes sense. Iron Man's got it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the the team goes out there. Now, before they get there, uh, we find that the Hulk has taken refuge. He is vilified. He has taken refuge with a traveling circus where he is a star attraction juggling <laughs> at the same time an elephant, a horse, and an otter. <laughs> I know you love this panel. I've seen you post this panel online a bunch. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is one of the more spectacular Hulk tricks you are likely to see. Now, everyone in the circus uh, who's running it, they think the Hulk is a robot because, of course, there's there could be nothing so strong that actually lives. It's just as silly as the like Clark Kent Superman disguise. He just put some white face paint on and everyone is like, oh, who could that be? And then yeah. later he wipes it off and immediately people start screaming about the Hulk. Right, <laughs> like, right. Yeah. It is completely ridiculous, but somehow works. Um, yep. it, again, oh, so it's here when we're in the Southwest where Pym's terrifying surveillance network advance actually find the Hulk, uh, Ant-Man, and Iron Man then. So it, the the four heroes at this point, Thor, Iron Man, Ant-Man, and the Wasp, they have met up. They have talked. They decide they're going to try and find the Hulk together. Um, mm-hmm. And basically in doing so, you know, once, they, once Pym identifies him, Ant-Man and Iron Man attack the hulk in the circus so thor shows up they fight as well he thor pretty quickly identifies loki's work at play um and he with the with the mirage that he created so thor travels to the isle of silence and apprehends loki for for all the traps and things oh and he he has to to get to loki he has to get past you know all sorts of crazy traps that loki has set up right so we get some asgard journeying where Thor yeah, has to yeah. defy all these different trials and tribulations. A bunch of, like, living branches that attack him, some trolls that are some, like, patented Kirby saggy monsters. Exactly. And then, like, I, I thought this was actually kind of strange and felt like it got off 
track a little bit here like having thor just, it, this is where like avengers number one felt like oh this is just several different comics smushed together but like individually at times right like here's the thor five pages of thor right here's a few pages of this like um it doesn't quite feel like a team comic as much as just here's a bunch of everything you like next to each other yeah and it's a it's a little more of like a journey into mystery showcase to be like, mm-hmm. hey, here's yeah, what happens in Thor's mag, word, you know, right. right? To to show off Asgard, and it doesn't necessarily connect as well as, well, say, especially since the rest of them aren't there. That would have been a fun way, of, you know. Iron Man and Ant Man came to Asgard, right, and like see there. This just feels like another issue of Journey into Mystery for four or five pages. Yeah, something like that. Totally, totally. So once Thor apprehends Loki. Um, he flies back to Earth, where you've got Iron Man, Ant Man, and the Wasp all fighting the Hulk. Thor prevents more fighting. Uh, in fighting between them by showing them Loki and saying, you know, this is the one responsible. And they apprehend Loki shortly thereafter. And the team kind of realizes it was all a mix up. So once this happens, Ant-Man and the Wasp propose the idea of assembling as a team. And the Wasp, of course, suggests the name The Avengers. She says it should be something colorful and dramatic like The Avengers or, and then Pym, helpfully, says or nothing that's it the avengers (laughs) (laughs) yeah hank and janet they have like a little bit of banter in some of the tales to astonish that is it's almost fun but uh like hank is just constantly chiding janet he dads her all the time for but it like comes from a weird place of like he's romantically interested but also she's a teenager so he doesn't want to express that but she walks around just like slobbering over every man who walks in front of her. Yes. Like she's obsessed with hunks. <laughs> yes. And like he's always like they're in the middle of a battle and she's like checking out the Hulk's abs and Hank is like, Janet, not now. That happens all the time. There's and, a and, there's a scene I love in particular that we'll we'll come to a bit later in this where Kang the Conqueror shows up, you know, mm-hmm. all purple and lounging in his space chair. And all the yeah. Avengers are getting ready to fight, and Janet says something to the effect of, "Oh, I bet he's pretty good looking under all that armor." <laughs> it's like, it's like <laughs> yeah, Janet, they, not the time. Yeah, they weirdly like. I mean, I don't think it's supposed to read as sex crazed. It's supposed to read as like romance crazed, right? They're just like women only have one thing on their mind, yeah. and it's men, right? Yeah, Janet. Janet won't become the the Jan Van Dyne that is, I think, very interesting. Until yeah. she becomes kind of a leader of the team late in the later, yeah. you know, well, it, it won't take too long. We'll get there. But we're only at Avengers number one, and the team has officially formed, and that is how they did it. Which brings us to the next big number one issue this year, that is Uncanny X-Men. Uncanny X-Men number one. We open up on a man sitting in this big mansion. Uh, this is Professor X. He looks like a middle-aged man, completely bald. And he psychically calls out to a bunch of his students. He calls Cyclops, Beast, Iceman, and Angel. And these four teenagers show up and he puts them through a bunch of training and testing. They don't call it the danger room at this point. They're just kind of in this big space where all these different perils and dangers are being thrown at them. This is a little showcase for the four new heroes' powers. So we've got Cyclops, a.k.a. Scott Summers, a.k.a. Slim Summers at this point. Uh, I don't... How long does that stick around for? So, I mean, it's it's st- it's stuck today, right, as his nickname. 
Um, yeah, they they don't. I don't know if they say Scott. They just introduce him as Slim Summers. I, I think they only call him Slim in the first issue. Which reading it yeah. again, I I was kind of struck by. Oh, that's where that comes from. I I kind of yeah. forgotten. So uh, we've got Cyclops, Scott Summers, and he has this visor on that when he opens it up, he shoots out this beam out of his eyes. We've got Beast, who just kind of is a a boy shaped like a gorilla, big hulking, long arms, you know, big barrel chest, very strong prehensile toes. Right. Yep. And uh, super strong, super fast and agile. Um, I wouldn't even say super strong. It's just that he's strong, but I think more to the point, he's really agile. Right. Uh, Iceman, who is just, who can create ice. He's <laughs> he a snowman himself. at this point. Yeah, he wraps himself in snow. He looks like a snowman. At one point during training, he, he's the youngest of the X-Men. So they point out that he's still a little bit of a kid. And he's not taking training seriously uh, because Professor X won't let him do the really dangerous stuff. So he turns around, puts like a carrot nose and some coal <laughs> on himself and turns around as a snowman. Uh, and then Angel, who is, just has angel wings. That's <laughs> that's his power. And that's, oh, uh, let's see. I forgot names here. Beast is Hank McCoy. Iceman is Bobby Drake. And Angel is Warren, Wor- Warren Worthington III. After training the X-Men, which stands for extra power <laughs> says professor x yeah refusing to acknowledge that he's just an egotist and wanted to name them after himself that's a good point they're just yeah just after xavier oh yeah professor x uh, charles xavier a teen girl is pulling up the driveway and this is a new pupil jean gray professor x kind of lays out the entire purpose of the x-men they are mutants so this this is an interesting they're mutants so they're born with these powers and they are feared by humanity, and the X-Men's goal is to do good for humanity in order to win over their trust. And so I think this is an interesting like, interesting subversion of most of the superhero origins we've seen and that have happened to this point. I think everyone we've seen so far, the superhero origin has been something that has been foisted upon a normal man, right? Their radiation caused them, radiation, cosmic rays, science in some way has altered a person, or they have you know, Iron Man has built his suit. But these are people who are born with these powers, and because of it, they're feared for these powers. And they do choose to do good, right? They could Mm -hmm. hide in this school that Professor Xavier has set up. They could take the Magneto track that we'll get to of, of, well, I'm feared and hated, so I'm going to take out my anger on humanity. Um, But it very Mm -hmm. clearly lays out kind of the Professor X mission statement here for the X-Men, which I think is his defining best trait which is to say we're going to use our powers to do good even though it may not we may not be popular right yeah yeah um and professor x is in a wheelchair which he says is because of a childhood accident i think we'll see that change we'll change that we'll see that change a few times yeah they are not wearing probably the x-men costumes you might recognize they have these yellow and blue jumpsuits uh that i think are going to make a return in next year's Dark Phoenix X-Men movie. That trailer didn't look that exciting to me, but those new costumes, having the old costumes in that was pretty cool. Yeah, we should. I guess that's a good point, too, is like if you're new to reading Marvel Comics, the mm-hmm. the start of Uncanny X-Men number one here in 1963 is, is quite different than the start of X-Men that would get relaunched in the mid to late 70s. And that's probably the lineup and the uniforms that people tend to think of. Um, right. But they start at these original X-Men. is it's, it's like an entirely different era and team from probably what most people 
think of when they think of X-Men. There's a good modern miniseries that kind of goes over this this whole era of X-Men. Is it X-Men, X-Men First Class? I think, yeah. And it's not First Class like the movie. It's First Class just showing like, yeah. these kind of early origins updated to modern styles yeah that are worth reading if, if you read some of these and you're not interested check out some of the like rebooted retellings of these because they're still fun stories yeah and we'll and we'll highlight like what i think are probably the good x-men comics from this time because honestly x-men is not one of the stronger 60s runs yeah, um yeah. it's surprisingly so because of how popular yeah. they are now it doesn't start super strong out of the gates and again it's like this is lee it's kirby together um the concepts there but the characters aren't quite what they're going to be uh yeah we'll even see them get like almost kind of canceled for a while right they go into like reprinting old issues yeah. as new numbers like they don't have new stories to tell and they just kind of retell the same stories again for a while yeah so. once we hit like 70 to 75 you know the x-men aren't really a part of the marvel lineup um at that yeah, point yeah all right, well, well, we'll get to that eventually. Yeah. So the, the yellow and blue jumpsuits of the X-Men are kind of fun, but a little dull. On the other hand, Magneto shows up looking perfect. He's so good. Like, he nailed, they nailed the design immediately. He looks so good. His costume is so, like, so iconic. This is one of my Jack Kirby superpowers, I think, is helmet design. Because mm-hmm. Magneto's helmet is so much fun, and it's so much more flamboyant, and I think, like you said earlier, extra than than it needs <laughs> yeah. to be, and I love it. Sure. It looks so cool. Yeah, it's good. Uh, so Magneto is this evil mutant, <laughs> I think maybe even self-proclaimed evil mutant, yeah. who, uh, because of the way mutants are mistreated, he is going to rule mankind. Uh, he's going to use his powers to take over Earth and rule humans. So Magneto has the power to control metal, magnetics powers. Those powers, as expected, are a little loosey-goosey at first, so he can do stuff like just build a force field out of magnet power, stuff like that that doesn't quite line up, but generally he controls metal. Yeah. So he, he pulls some missile. There's some America's testing some missiles. He pulls them out of the sky and crashes them in the ocean. He makes some turrets and some tanks go crazy on military bases. Uh, and, then, and then he shapes, he takes some metal dust and forms it in the air, kind of like skywriting. Surrender the base or I'll take it by force. Magneto. <laughs> I really like it. In the sky, he signs his own name in cursive. He then struts into the military base. And this is like, this might be my favorite shot of the year, is a shot of him walking into the military base, just like expelling soldiers all around him just they're all flying backwards and he's just walking through nonchalantly with all these soldiers flying everywhere so the x-men find out about magneto taking over this military base and they feel like it is their responsibility to go fight him as fellow mutants they need to redeem the mutant name and this, this was a really funny detail i kind of figured they would you know fly or get onto some kind of jet right from the mansion no instead they they jump in a car drive to the airport and then from there <laughs> get in an airplane and fly to the military base and i really like when they get there that cyclops walks up to the commander and introduces himself and the x-men you know so as opposed to just like sneaking in and fighting like they're very right. proper and respectful and the the soldier is like oh never heard of you but yeah, take a shot. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with you four teenagers walking in there. <laughs> At some point, I think Cyclops says, Yabo, 
which is one of those patented Stanley teenage slang words that just makes them sound. Uh, there is some I have in my notes here that the X Men are all teens, but they all talk like old men. <laughs> I did read it as yeah boy, <laughs> which I kind of prefer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah boy is so much better. Yeah, I mean it's spelled. Y a y b o yebo, but yebo. I'm I'm gonna read that as yebo. Mm-hmm. That's my new preference. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So the X Men show up at this military base, and they have this big fight with Magneto, who is tossing missiles at them, throwing tanks of rocket fuel that are exploding and scrap metal at them. Uh, but eventually, they do subdue him. I don't actually remember how. Uh, do you remember the details of this? I don't I don't think it was particularly interesting. I feel like most of these fights end with they win and it isn't particularly like it's not the strongest moment. Like I feel like the build up to the fights and maybe sometimes the fights are fun, but then the actual moment where they succeed is just like and then they finally get a punch in and knock him out. I think the way these stories are structured a lot of times is the defeat of the villain occurs on the literal last page. On page 23 or 24. Very often I'm surprised when I turn the page that that was the last page. Right. Like I turn it in the comics over and I'm like, oh, that's it. Like they, yeah, it's all build up. Right. It doesn't feel like it's going to have a conclusion. I mean, so you asked with Magneto, I think basically what happens is he forgets about, he's overconfident, right? Which is so often the villain's downfall is hubris and he forgets Cyclops can escape from under rubble and Cyclops surprises him by blasting out from the rubble and then the team works together to, to finally... Um, chase him off. They don't actually capture him at this point. Yeah, so that that's X-Men number one. I think it's a, a pretty good introduction. Everything here feels like it is set in stone for a while, right? Like these all feel like Magneto definitely grows as a villain. All these characters get fleshed out much more and these themes get fleshed out much more, but the the, the skeleton is here and I think it's it's pretty strong. Yeah, the team concept is pretty good. I think one thing that uh, that really separates the X-Men in ways that will continue to be interesting mm-hmm. and are interesting today is the fact that it's set in a school. I mean, that's just not something we yeah. had seen really in superhero comics was the idea of this superhero school. They're all in training, which is different. A lot of the other superheroes are just right on the job. Right, exactly. And, you know, I think one thing, you know, it's like this issue came out actually a few months after Doom Patrol which mm-hmm. is very similarly structured with a leader in a wheelchair and a team of really good oh, really? powers. <laughs> and if you ask, uh, if you ask the creator Arnold Drake, you know he'll say that uh, yeah, maybe they maybe they took some of you know what he had established there in Doom Patrol. But I think the one thing that separates X Men is kept up interesting again is like it's a school that is different and it's something that kind of everybody can relate to as far as setting goes. And and them as outsiders being mutants. And, you know, the, all the analogies that play into that, whether or not we are forcing those analogies over it for civil rights, for LGBT rights, etc. I think all those really work strongly as just, you know, minorities, you know, facing any kind of persecution. Right. All right. So the last bunch of stories that we're going to cover are a section of Strange Tales. And Strange Tales, at this point in time, uh, it was a human torch solo story in the front half, and then there'd be a backup story behind Human Torch. And the ones that we're going to cover in issues 110, 114, and 115 detail the origins and some stories of one Dr. Stephen Strange. So the first one we're looking at, Strange Tales number 110, the Human Torch takes on the Wizard and Paste Pot Pete. These are a couple of 
uh, basically new-ish Marvel villains, both of whom the Torch has taken on in his own Strange Tales exploits already. So he's, you know, he's been having his own battles on the side uh, in addition to the Fantastic Four. I think it speaks to the popularity of FF or certainly the desired popularity on the part of Marvel in that they were already, you know, spinning off their teenage superhero into his own book with his own villains. It's probably telling that Johnny Storm is the one who gets his own spinoff as the teenage boy of the group, which probably speaks to the demographic reading. Yeah. The first page of Strange Tales number 110, it's like a splash page showing the torch being attacked by the wizard and pastepot Pete. And it has the caption, warning, if you have a weak heart, don't read this story. That warning paired with an image of a man whose power is glue attacking the torch <laughs> is, is very dissonant to me. I can never sleep after I read a Pastepot Pete story. I don't know if that's just me. <laughs> um, yeah, so this this story here is a plot by Stan Lee, of art by Dick Ayers, and a script by H.E. Huntley, who we see pop up throughout 1963 as kind of a, um, a non-Stan Lee scripter. But yeah, the comic opens with the torch working out, and he's literally going through a scrapbook recap of um of the wizard and pace pop heat you know so basically as a reminder <laughs> to readers of who they are i like that that johnny keeps a very thorough scrapbook that's nice pace pop pete is a guy whose power it's not even a power he just uses glue a lot for lots of different things different types of glue specifically flame proof glue against the torch right i i don't know what else there is to say about him he just his shtick is glue it's it's a very strange character that comes back a bunch yeah. yeah, he's a fun one just because the, the super alliterative name. He's definitely one of the goofier yeah. Silver Age villains, I think. I think a lot of he times... He kind of works. He's he's pretty funny. Yeah, and like if you look at him and like Stiltman, who we haven't gotten to yet, but they're like probably yeah, two of the favorites, I think, of fans today, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you're putting your finger on that scale a little bit with Stiltman, but... <laughs> yeah, that could be. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so Pace Pop Pete is is thinking of how to get back at the human torch and to do so he busts the wizard out of jail classic supervillain team up ensues uh johnny is framed as a criminal and you know one thing that is you should mention who the wizard is what his deal is you know he's, he's not magic he's well that's the okay so yeah the wizard's not a magician um the wizard that i know and i mm-hmm. was probably introduced to him in the Fantastic Four animated series in the 90s looks quite different than we see him here in these early appearances. Um, he he essentially, he develops, he's, he's a scientific genius, and he develops kind of anti-gravity um, discs, which he, he uses to fly and capture people and all sorts of, of shady ongoings. Now, he's not... He, like he's not wearing the big purple helmet that will kind of become his signature costume at this point in time. Um, he does actually kind of look more like a magician, I think, to a degree. That's kind of how his origin starts up a little bit. But just reading this, he comes across as like Reed Richards, not not even nearly as smart as Reed Richards, but Reed Richards intelligence with none of the powers. He's just a smart, smart science guy. Yeah. Which, and I, I think like every other supervillain also is with powers alongside of it so yeah i think a reed richards foil is a good way of looking at him um which actually makes him an interesting like kind of arch enemy here in the early going for torch because again like him fighting the evil version of his family is not something that we would have seen at this point in time yeah so the the wizard and pace pop heat they frame johnny 
uh, for a crime, and because the torch has no secret identity to hide behind, he like he just has to continue going about his days, and everyone knows that he's been accused of this crime. It's kind of an interesting difference between, say, Spider-Man, the teenage hero, yeah. who has all these public relations problems, but they're all internal strife. Johnny's are all just out in the open. He hears like his high school peers talking like, oh, wow, did he really he really stole those plans, huh? And they wouldn't print it in the newspaper if it wasn't true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that line is rife with meaning here in, uh, in 2018. But yeah, so, so Johnny, in order to um, reclaim his innocence, he pretends to be a rich guy, who the wizard in Pace Pop Pete will want to rob. He puts out, I think, an advertisement in the newspaper to announce his coming. The wizard and Pace Pop Pete, of course, uh, come out to get him. They fight. There's all sorts of action. And the Human Torch apprehends them and proves that they were the real perpetrators of this crime all along. And so... I don't think... Oh, go ahead. What I liked here, I think this is something that we hadn't seen too much of before, is the interplay between the villains is pretty fun. So Pace Pop Pete breaks the wizard out of jail who immediately decides that, like, Pacepot Pete is going to be his underling. And Pacepot Pete is not a fan. He's the one who just broke the wizard out. So you just have this constant, like, the wizard's just bossing him around, and Pacepot Pete is grumbling the whole time about, you know, I'm no sidekick, we're equal partners, but still does what he says. And it's kind of, it's just a fun little character dynamic. Yeah, it's a, I like it's at a one good point, villain dynamic. I mean, that's very... It becomes sort of pat in superhero comics for the reason yeah. they this the super villains can't worry yeah. can't win is because they can't get along you know because they're bad guys <laughs> they don't play well with others right it's like yeah. it's classic like Sinister Six so we'll get to you know that's the Torch A story I do think you know we're going to talk about the other Torch stories but probably not quite as thoroughly um, just because the Torch stories aren't these are more like. I don't know, extra filler, I guess, for yeah. the for the age. They aren't as good as Fantastic Four. They aren't as good as Spider-Man. Um, they are kind of interesting, though, and it's always a little fascinating to me that, like, Torch had a solo ongoing for a pretty good long while here in Strange Tales. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that was one of Marvel's, you know, go-to properties as they were developing the Marvel Universe. Yeah. So the backup story here, though, is the one that I think, uh, you know, makes Strange Tales number 110 really worth its salt and that is dr strange master of black magic it's a five-page story by stan lee and steve ditko and it of course introduces dr strange so the one cool thing about this short story is it's really just testing the waters with strange as a character it is not his origin Mm -hmm. um it opens with strange as a known entity in the marvel universe this man who's been having horrible dreams goes you know wakes up and says i've heard of this doctor i have to go see you know this doctor who deals with occult matters and he goes to see strange that way so again it's just kind of a it's presupposed that people here in this world know who strange is Mm -hmm. so strange speaks with the man tries to figure out what his problem is says no no worries i'll figure it out he goes into the dreams dimension because again he's a master of black magic and it is here within his dreams that Doctor Strange is approached by Nightmare, who will become an ongoing Doctor Strange villain, one of the more on-the-name noses, certainly, as far as villains go. I liked I liked Nightmare a lot. I'm glad to hear that he becomes reoccurring, because the, uh, the imagery of him in this dream, this kind of black silhouette figure on a horse, mm-hmm. was really cool. And then he did literally nothing. He just cackled and threatened Doctor Strange, and then in one panel, Doctor Strange just leaves. And that was <laughs> the entire threat of nightmares. Yeah. 
that he was like, I've got you now. And then Doctor Strange left and you never saw him again. Right. But I was hoping he comes back. Yeah, he's real big on showing up and cackling. I would say that is maybe what (laughs) he's best at. Um, so, So you've got Doctor Strange in his astral form goes into the nightmare realm and he's encountered by a nightmare and as this is happening there's the man who has been having these bad dreams kind of watching he's been having this bad dream of a a coffin wrapped up in chains like Mm -hmm. carrying him which is also a pretty cool and dark image for what we've been reading in marvel so far right right yeah and he he sort of realizes all this is happening that strange has learned the man's secret uh which i feel like he could have seen coming but that he uh, he had robbed a bunch of men in business and that these dreams were, you know, his his guilt weighing him down, essentially. But once he realizes that Strange knows about this, he decides he better kill Doctor Strange. He can't know this information. So Doctor Strange is in battle with Nightmare. He can't really do anything to protect his own body. So he calls out to the Ancient One who to protect him, essentially. And from from a vast distance, I don't know that they actually say Tibet at this point. They don't yet say Tibet, but yeah. So we know it's Tibet eventually. But from a distance, the Ancient One uh, is able to protect Doctor Strange through the eye of Agamotto, the eye that Doctor Strange wears, the amulet on his chest. So that uh, that prevents this man from killing him, and basically Doctor Strange then gets back to his astral, you know, his astral body returns to form. And, uh, and we have this really short Doctor Strange story that um, that doesn't tell you how he got that way. It just tells you, hey, mm-hmm. here's this guy and here's the type of problems he deals with. I think this story was noteworthy because nothing else in Marvel Comics was like this. They even say right at the top, a different kind of superhero. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely true. Like just having magic and this supernatural realm come into play, you know, his astral self floats out of his body and enters dreams. It's everything else that we've been reading is very sci-fi fantasy like leaning on sci-fi somewhat fantastical this is purely in the like fantasy magic realm and that that's cool like that they're doing like a de- do you think this had anything to do with dc having zatanna yeah so i was i was actually looking at that and i don't zatanna wasn't I mean, she's been around forever right zatanna and zatara her dad like they they've been around for a long time but they weren't you know they didn't have like solo mags certainly okay at this point in time um in the dc universe so i do think strange is actually unique within the landscape of certainly big two superheroes um as far as being like carrying his own magazine right and this is like certainly pre-constantine hellblazer and all that stuff oh yeah yeah another 20 20 years. years um so i i think it's it is an interesting development that that Lee and Ditko mm-hmm. kind of stumble on with the short story, and I think it really taps into like the '60s psychedelic movement and is yeah in such that a will big happen way. even more yeah and more and more like as the decade progresses, and I think it's a bigger reason why Doctor Strange became such a cult or had such a cult following um, mm-hmm. because I don't know to us maybe it doesn't seem super psychedelic, but when you look at the context of everything around it, there aren't yeah. stories like that, and it's kind of the only. It's the only one playing in that space. Well, even even the color palette of these three issues that we read is very different from the rest that we read. The uh, the tones of like greens and purples and oranges is it's just a different palette than they've been using for the the kind of bright primary colors of yeah. their mainline superheroes. Yeah, and I will call out too, like so Ditko's art. You know, I mentioned the psychedelic. Like these issues are not super psychedelic, really. Um, they don't really get to that sort of trippy alternate reality, weird sort of dimensional stuff until later. At this point, I mean, 
they're relatively straightforward looking comics with the exception, like you said, of Nightmare shows up and you mm-hmm. know he's like coated in black and riding a horse and, you know, kind of mysterious, yeah. right? And I do like his Doctor Strange here quite a bit. Again, he comes out of the gate pretty much looking like the character that we know him today. Except that he looks like they didn't, they hadn't locked down that he was a white man. So he, I think he kind of mm. codes as East Asian here. Uh, I'm I'm not sure if that was intentional or if they just hadn't like figured that out because he definitely like reads a little bit as Asian in a way that he doesn't in the next couple issues. That's interesting. Yeah, I would say by the next the next issue we get to, which we can transition to here, Strange Tales number one fourteen. Yeah. Um, he looks more like Eastern European, I would say. But um, yeah, but yeah, let's get into it. Okay, so uh, Strange Tales one fourteen has a cover that promises a fight between the Human Torch and Captain America. Which is interesting because Captain America is not part of the Marvel Universe at this time, although he was in the Golden Age back in the 40s. And I'm not sure when he dropped out, like his magazine stopped running. I was almost surprised that he was not one of the founding members of the Avengers when we read that. Yeah, I I think that's a really good point is that Captain America is not there at jump um, in the Marvel Universe. And, And again, like he has not been resurrected for the Silver Age. To date. Yeah. So him showing up in an issue of Torch is is actually kind of a big deal, right? And that's why they yeah. threw him on the cover. And now we know with the, the context of history and the fact that we're going to read Avengers number four next year, which of course is the resurrection of Cap on that cover, that this is sort of a tease. The first page of this issue has two different things that say like, you know, wait for the surprise ending and right. don't spoil <laughs> right. the twist. Like <laughs> the first page tells you that like, oh, it's not going to be him. They're basically spoiling their right. They're basically spoiling their own comic by saying, "Wait for the spoiler." Um, but but yeah, it's it's interesting that they were testing the waters, I guess, and I, I think that's literally what they were doing. They were trying to see like what what would the interest be. So spoiler, it's not actually Captain America. It's another supervillain posing as him. I'll get into that. But it ends with a one panel shot of Captain America looking heroic, and them saying. The caption says something like, oh, would you like to see more of Captain America? Write in. Maybe we'll listen. So, yeah, I think they were seeing how if people were interested in him coming back. And not only interested in seeing him coming back, but seeing him um, under the pen of Stanley and Jack Kirby, who mm-hmm. are the creative team on this comic. I'll go over what happens in this, this story real quick. The Human Torch finds out that Captain America's back. He's alive and starring at an antique automotive show. So Human Torch goes. A couple criminals try to steal a car. Human Torch and Captain America kind of tussle over who's going to stop the criminals. Human Torch flies off, kind of annoyed that Captain America stole his thunder. And he goes to his girlfriend's house, Doris Evans, who is looking at like a magazine of Captain America and kind of drooling. Uh, and Human Torch is is jealous over his, his girlfriend looking at Cap like this. And he starts to like instinctually flame on, which means that he starts melting the linoleum in her mother's apartment as he runs out of the house before he burns it down. As he's running out of the house and the kitchen floor is on fire, Doris is just on the phone and it says, hello, hello, send over some new linoleum. <laughs> A very good and odd response to the house being on fire. That's who I always call whenever I see a fire. <laughs> it's the linoleum store. <laughs> well, yeah, you immediately start planning on buying new building supplies. Right. Anyway, so the story is Captain America breaks some people out of prison it's kind of funny. He clings to the wall of the prison and lets these two criminals use him as a ladder to climb down, <laughs> which is very good. Um, he is using these criminals to cause a distraction so he can rob a bank. Human Torch goes after him. There's this big, long chase and fight. Um, my favorite part is Captain America breaks into a sporting goods store, grabs a mop from a janitor, 
gets it soaking wet, grabs an archery set, and then shoots the mop, at the wet mop at the Human Torch to extinguish him. And then Human Torch eventually beats him, pulls off his mask, and it's one of the Human Torch's old enemies, the Acrobat, because he's strong and fast like Captain America. It, it was fine. I mean, if this was not Captain America, if this was just the Acrobat is doing all these things, it would have been a pretty boring issue. It's only because of that slight mystery that it's worth reading. Anyway, we're here for the B story. Doctor Strange. Uh, <laughs> Doctor Strange is sitting in his Greenwich Village apartment, and he gets a distress call from one of his old friends, Doctor Bentley, which is immediately revealed to be Baron Mordo. It's mentioned that Baron Mordo is also a pupil of the Master, but an evil one. So he lures Doctor Strange under the guise of Doctor Bentley. He lures Doctor Strange to Bentley's castle estate. When Doctor Strange enters, he is paralyzed by some magic candles. That the smoke paralyzes him, and Mordo says, when the flames extinguish, your life will also be extinguished. Uh, Doctor Strange uses his, I don't know, magic mental powers to put out a call for help, and it's received by a woman nearby, Victoria Bentley, who I think becomes a character because Doctor Strange says she wouldn't pick up these mental projections unless she was sensitive to magic. But it's kind of funny that he takes this woman, lures her into the castle to, like, blow out the candles uh, so that he can escape. As soon as she does, he says, it's dangerous here. You must escape. You have to get out. Like, as if he didn't just put her <laughs> in this kingdom. <laughs> yeah. M Mordo shows up. They start having a fight. Mordo gets the upper hand. And then Doctor Strange reveals that it's just been his astral projection here the whole time. His body hadn't, <laughs> his body hadn't arrived yet. He was still on a plane. So he shows up, reunites with his astral projection, and then him and Mordo have this like have this really cool fight. There's uh there's just one there's one really cool shot of Doctor Strange and Mordo just standing face to face with their arms crossed, but then above them their astral projections are doing all the heavy lifting and fighting for them. And they're caked in like lightning bolts and it's it's definitely the most you know, I just mentioned it not being particularly psychedelic at this point. This is the most psychedelic panel by far. It's very cool. And I, I often find like face-to-face -face standoffs very silly. You know? Yeah. Like when guys are just staring at each other using the power of their minds or whatever. But this one actually like it's drawn effectively. It's only, it looks and cool. it's only one page. So it doesn't, yeah, it's quick. <laughs> it doesn't drag on because he immediately poofs Baron Mordo, uh, who just disappears in a puff of smoke to return at a later date. Yeah, and of course, of course, Mordo will. But it gives you a good setup for the strange Mordo dynamic, mm -hmm. um, and which we'll of see course, more of in the next issue. Exactly, we'll get we'll get even more of why Mordo hates uh, Strange so much here in Strange Tales number one fifteen. So Strange Tales number one hundred and fifteen. Uh, one thing that I like, well, there's a couple things I like about this issue actually, and you know, so I mentioned that you know the Human Torch ones are kind of just like. For those really dedicated to feeling out the Silver Age. Having yeah. said that, I feel like these are all actually really fun. <laughs> all three of the ones that we have here. Um, I think this, this was one, my favorite. Yeah, this one's good. It, it's So it's the Torch and he's on the cover. You see he's fighting Sandman, mm -hmm. uh, the Spider-Man villain who we um, skipped over in the main list with Amazing Spider-Man number four. Now, Zach, I know you would definitely recommend people. Yeah, I talk about one. this in extra issues. Mm -hmm. I think Amazing Spider-Man number four is one that you should definitely go check out. This is my favorite of the Spider-Man we've read so far. Yeah, yeah. So he's so he's a good Spidey villain, and you get the torch um, taking him on, which of course gives you more torch and Spidey dynamics, which is always good. So one thing I will call out here is you get more and more continuity overlap in the Marvel mm -hmm. Universe at this point. Again, yeah. I mean, we're talking late 1963 here. The Marvel Universe has been alive for 
not quite two full years. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's an editorial note in this in this comic that this takes place after Fantastic Four have fought Molecule Man in Fantastic Four number twenty, and after, of course, the Sandman intro in Amazing Spider-Man number four. So you're already getting sort of like a reading order checklist for yeah, yeah. The, for the continuity of Marvel events, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting to me, obviously, as somebody who catalogs that, like, over on Comic Book oh, right, Carol. yeah, that's helpful. But it's also interesting because, like, Marvel now has, like, oh, we've got all these stories sprawling out across all these titles. Like, we need to find a way to keep them together. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, these editorial notes hardly do that. So Sandman escapes, essentially. They get an intro. By just turning into sand and leaking out the window, they just 100% ignored that he could do that. Really <laughs> could have been a better prison. He was, like, literally just biding his time because clearly could have gotten out whenever he wanted. Just an open window with bars. Yeah, yeah, totally. Not a, not a great Sandman prison. Um, they need one of those, like, turtle sandboxes, you know, put the lid on it, throw them in one of those. <laughs> I feel like that would be more effective. But... But so Sandman escapes, he walks out onto, I don't know, the Manhattan Bridge and Torch goes and finds him to apprehend him. Kind of, you know, he's kind of got the anything you can do, I can do better Spidey thing going on. And yeah. uh, and Sandman literally, but he basically won't fight Torch. He basically won't interact with him. He says, I'm only interested in revenge on Spider-Man. And mm-hmm. uh, Torch takes this as sort of a slight, like what, I'm not good enough to, to beat up for you. And, you yeah. know, he continues searching for Sandman and he draws him out by putting on a Spider-Man costume going to the top of the Empire State Building and yelling from a blowhorn that here's here's Spider-Man, come and get me, Sandman. This is very funny because it doesn't... A smarter man than I might have immediately realized that this was the Human Torch and not just Spider-Man, but it just cuts to a shot of Spider-Man dangling from the Empire State Building with a bullhorn <laughs> calling out Sandman. And then he just... Yeah, so I didn't, I didn't know it was the Human Torch. I thought this was Spider-Man acting very strange. But... Then he just sits at the edge of the Empire State Building and says, well, he must have heard it. I'll just wait here and wait for him to show up. Q, Sandman just sneaks up the side of the building, sneaks up behind him and punches him in the back off the side of the building. <laughs> <laughs> like his entire plan was I'll lure him up here and then I'll just wait for him. And then he didn't even notice when he shows up and punches him in the back of the head. Yeah, yeah. Not Johnny's not the biggest planner <laughs> necessarily so basically once uh once the sandman encounters the torch they have this giant fight through the city they wind up in a room full of sprinklers it seems to be a testing ground for sprinklers um, that they've fallen yeah into. there's a lot of them there's a whole bunch yeah. uh, but basically it's kind of like it sets up an interesting fight because you get the sandman you know he can't use his sand powers with water coming down everywhere and of course torch is basically unable to keep a flame with that much water so what happens is they need to fight mano a mano and johnny's reasoning is in you know being able to take this grown hardened criminal in a fist fight is and i quote i have enough excess heat in my body to more than double my normal strength which i as somebody who runs hot that is definitely how it works (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's very absurd just anything that they want him to be able to do, they can just have heat <laughs> be responsible for. Yeah, I think Torch, um, I think some characters, they kind of, they grow more powered over time. Hulk, mm-hmm. I think, in yeah. particular, Superman over on the DC side. Johnny's powers have actually had to come back down <laughs> because he could do almost anything. Yeah, him, uh, him and Magneto both start out with a much wider range of powers yeah. that need to be limited just because otherwise they're basically magic and that's not that interesting if they just can constantly pull out deus ex machinas with their power right totally so so torch winds up winning this fist fight as the super powered individual he is there's a nice zonk panel of him punching out 
the Sandman, and uh, and basically you get a very last panel of Spider-Man showing up and saying, "Oh, looks like uh, looks like Torch already solved it." So I will uh, I'll just be out on my way then. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> See you all around. Yeah, right now at this point, Torch and Spider-Man have something of a rivalry rather than a friendship. They're both like a little bit stepping on each other's toes. Yeah, yeah. So. That brings us to the the more important issue here, the origin of Doctor Strange. This is the back oh, yeah. half again of Strange Tales number 115, Stan Lee and Steve Ditko with letters by uh, Sam Rosen. And basically Marvel is, they like, they're very big on this in the early days of, man, we got so much fan mail, we had to tell this story, which is a really nice promotional tactic, I think, as far mm-hmm. as making it look like there's so much interest. I was actually looking into this, like, were they really getting oodles and oodles of letters and it's kind of hard to confirm but the way they talk about it it makes it sound like everyone's reading doctor strange and asking and it's effective it makes you like it pulls you in i mean i i do kind of consider myself to be a somewhat cynical and skeptical man but i never even questioned i was like oh wow he's really popular huh (laughs) right yeah (laughs) yeah so here we get the classic uh, Doctor Strange origin again. It is it is very. If you've seen the movie, if you've seen Doctor Strange, oh yeah, um, yeah, it's very similar. I'm not that familiar with Doctor Strange except through the movie, and this was surprisingly just like spot on in the the movie. I, I was I was curious whether or not it was going to be that similar, and it it was except for the fact that uh, the Ancient One is not Tibetan in the movie due to <laughs> the Chinese movie market. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There were some complications there. But basically what happens with Strange is he it, the issue opens with him visiting the Ancient One in um, mm-hmm. a mysterious. Uh, I think it's actually come with us to the land of India is how the comic opens. Um, but basically he finds the Ancient One and then the Ancient One pries into his mind to flashback into Stephen Strange's origin. And we see that he was a brilliant surgeon. He was arrogant. He would not help people unless it benefited him personally. Mm-hmm. Um, although I do feel like some of the requests, like, like, hey, do some pro bono expensive surgery or like, I don't know, it could be organized a little better. Um, <laughs> but well, I mean, it, he also is the first we saw Spider-Man being a little bit of a jerk, but he also was bullied. So there was a little bit of rationale behind it. Stephen Strange is someone who's like standing at the top of the world and also is still just a jackass. So it's a little interesting. Even Tony Stark at this point isn't really portrayed as super arrogant. Yeah, that's a really good point is I think Stark is he's portrayed obviously as a playboy and as extremely um, privileged, but he's not a jerk about it, at least in, in his origin. Yeah, no, it's not on the nose like this is. Right. Strange is probably the least likable person um, before he gets his powers, I, I think, to yeah. this point. But yeah, so he's, he's speeding along his car. He gets in a car crash. He hurts his hands, of course. And then basically it's, you'll never do surgery again. There are some interesting scenes mm-hmm. here um, that I, I don't know if they even, they kind of implied in the movie, but they don't have them where, you know, other doctors or people in the hospital say, listen, even though you can't operate, you know, you can be a consultant. You can be my assistant. Like he could still have a good job, <laughs> <laughs> but he's yeah. like, no, if I can't do it, I, if I can't operate myself, you know, I won't, I won't do anything. It's top dog or nothing. Yeah. I won't assist anybody. So yeah, so Stephen Strange hears of the Ancient One, and he goes to visit him. And that brings us back to where we started the comic with the Ancient One prying into his mind. So Stephen Strange travels abroad, he finds him, and basically the Ancient One tells him, you know, hey, I can teach you the powers of the supernatural. Stephen Strange, (laughs) after traveling all that way, says, what a bunch of malarkey. I'm out of here. After being lifted in the air by the ancient one. Yeah, this hasn't convinced him yet, amazingly. Um, so he's he's there, but basically he's traveled all this way. He's like, all right, I, 
you know, I need to remain here until the snowstorm thaws, I think, up in this mountain they're in. He meets Baron Mordo, who's an assistant for the Ancient One at this point. And once he's inside the Ancient One's um, stronghold, Stephen Strange, you know, he stumbles across Baron Mordo, uh, who is who is working against the Ancient One and actually speaking with the Dread Dormammu, uh, who will become, of course, a major villain in Doctor Strange comics mm -hmm. to take down the Ancient One. I would call here, too, the Ancient One when he... He's talking to Strange. He calls upon the Vishanti, Dormammu, Agamotto, um, and Strange sees him call on all these as Dormammu yeah. and Mordor attack him, and he becomes a believer, basically, seeing the Ancient One use magic to protect himself. Mm -hmm. um, you also have Baron Mordor here. He, you know, to keep Strange silent from warning the Ancient One of the impending attack, he puts an invisible... Uh, like metal mask around uh, Strange's iron mouth. muzzle, yeah, yeah. Some people call it a muzzle, and uh, and this keeps you know only Strange can see it. So he looks in a mirror. He he can't see it there, but he knows. Which it. I think is actually a really affecting image that he has this like really nasty contraption on his face. Yeah, and then he turns to look in the mirror, and it's not there. It's pretty good. Yeah, for sure. Um, but you know, basically, he, he despite this limitation, he feels he must warn the Ancient One of Mordu's plotting. Uh, so he does so finally Mordo's kind of or the ancient one's kind of like yeah I know Mordo, Mordo's a creep everyone agrees <laughs> and Strange is like well why do you why do you keep him here um, but you know in doing so the ancient one sees that Strange has a good heart or at least opportunity to potentially have a good heart and he yeah. brings him on as his disciple so that is I would say the origin of Doctor Strange um, you know I think we talked a bit about origins not being our favorite stories in the early parts of these um, of yeah. these comics. I think the strange origin is is really good, actually. Yeah, yeah, I do too. Um, it builds up the character again. It sets up this complex dynamic of why why you should care. You know, basically. Yeah. Um. Of like, yeah, he was unlikable, but he's trying. It's a redemption story, and yeah. he's trying yeah. to be better. And again, it sets up this cast of characters in this location that is very different mm -hmm. than New York City, uh, which is nice. Yeah, for sure. I think that's its biggest strength is that it's just. A very unique setting to what they were doing at the time. I think this will these will probably get a little stronger as they establish some rules slightly for the magic. Mm -hmm. Right now it's a little loosey goosey, but like for the most part, they they already have a bunch of the stuff that becomes mainstays of Doctor Strange. Like the astral projection is already a huge part, and that's something that happens quite often with him. So. Yeah. So one before I before I end this quick semi relevant question, Zach. Do you like mm. the blue strange cape or the red one? Because I quite like the all blue getup he's in in this first uh, origin issue. <laughs> I, I mean, to be honest, I didn't notice that it was different from. <laughs> I I liked yeah I liked the image of Doctor Strange. I didn't think oh different cape because I don't know. I mean, it's like I, I don't have the a... more electric blue his cape could be. The more the more in on a strange comic. You're into it. Be. Okay. I mean, yeah, I guess that's right. Like, I mean, my context is the movies where it's red. So that that's about. All I yeah, know. He's, he's so. got a red and blue costume, typically. That was 1963. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in supporting the show, you can head to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash mymarvelousyear. We have all kinds of pretty fun backer rewards there. Uh, I'll call out the $5 tier. You get access to both our notes, and I have a sideshow where I cover a bunch of different issues that we didn't talk about on this main show, uh, kind of in a quick condensed version for 1963, I ended up talking about 15 different issues, I think. Not all of them are great, but uh, I glance over them, and sometimes they 
have some characters that come back later, uh, even if their initial issue wasn't that interesting. Including Sandman, Amazing Spider-Man number four. Yeah, that one's really good. I mean, even if you don't listen to extra issues, go read Amazing Spider-Man number four if you like Spider-Man. That one's really fun. Uh, You can send your feedback to us um, for our listener episode, which is coming out February 4th. You can send that feedback to mymarvelousyear at gmail.com by January 29th. Uh, That's the deadline, and that's only a couple days from now. The feedback for 1964 is due by February 19th. Uh, Also, we've got our poll up on our Patreon. The poll is, who is more responsible for Marvel Comics success, Stan Lee or Jack Kirby? And that poll is also closing, I think, tomorrow, January 29th, if you're listening to this day of release. We're definitely going to have to talk about that one in the uh, in the listener episode because you know, especially in the wake of the passing of Stan Lee yeah. here this past yeah. month, is when we're recording. Um, I have a lot of thoughts yeah. on the matter, and obviously they're both extremely Titanic figures. So yeah, let's um let's let's give it. I some was more thinking discussion. we should actually like we're going to stay out of the poll, not vote in the poll, right? And also like I think you and I should keep our opinion secret until we actually talk about it, so that we can have maybe that will be our yeah when the gloves come off. Uh, all right, so if you like the show and uh, you're listening here, if you could rate and review on iTunes, that would be, um, or wherever you're listening, that would be extremely beneficial to us in helping us find new listeners. Uh, I would also recommend you look for my marvelous here on Instagram, Twitter, or of course, if you are a Patreon supporter, join the Slack channel where you can join in the conversation with the community. Um, you can ask Zach and myself questions about some of the comics mm-hmm. you're reading or really anything My Marvelous Year related. Um, That's really where we want to center the community conversation happening. Yeah. Just on a personal plug note, uh, check out comicbookherald.com. It's where you can find more of my writing and more of my work as well as the lists. If you go to mymarvelousyear.com, that will take you to all the original uh, guides where you can find the comics to read um, throughout the years. So next episode's readings, though, will be uh, available via the show notes. If you're just downloading and subscribing on the podcast, we'll also send them out mm-hmm. through uh, Patreon supporter email, comic book herald email. And uh, of course, you can always, again, as I mentioned, go to mymarvelousyear.com and find every year's list as you want to. And again, all these comics we are reading, uh, we're reading them through Marvel Unlimited. It is the Marvel subscription service that we highly recommend you check out if you want to play along. This episode's theme was composed by Disasterpiece. If uh, if you like that, go check out his work. Really great stuff. Well, thanks everybody for listening, and we will see you next year. See you next year. See you next year.